welcome back to MFA Writers. We're so glad to have you here for our first new episode of 2024. I hope the new year has been treating you all well so far. Today I'm excited to have an episode on Rutgers University Newark, which was requested by Marisha Hicks and Dawn Angelica. But before that, I want to give a shout out to Emily Jacobson, who recently left us a review on Apple Podcasts. Emily wrote, Fantastic resource. I just discovered this podcast last week, and I have already learned so much about MFA programs and the writer's experiences navigating the process. This is such a helpful resource for writers out there who want to learn about what it's like to apply to programs and what it's like to be an MFA student in general. Thanks, Jared. Thank you, Emily, for listening and for leaving that kind review. Here's to another great year together. You can find MFA writers on Instagram and Twitter, as well as MFAwriters.com. We love to hear from listeners, so feel free to shoot us a direct message on one of those platforms or an email at MFAwritersPodcast at gmail.com. And if you have a minute to rate or review the show, the best place to do that is on Apple Podcasts. Doing so will help boost our podcast as we try to boost these amazing writers. Also, if you or someone you know would like to be a guest on the show, you can apply at MFAwriters.com. On that same website, you can also click the support button to support us financially, if it's within your means. Or you can do so by going directly to buymeacoffee.com slash MFAwriters. Finally, as always, thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoy the episode. Welcome to MFA Writers, the podcast where we talk to creative writing MFA students about their program, their process, and a piece they're working on. I'm your host, Jared McCormick. Today, I'm with Noah Evan Wilson. Noah is a writer and musician based in New York City and a second-year MFA candidate in fiction at Rutgers University, Newark. His short stories have been published or are forthcoming in Beyond Words, Third Street Review, Chautauqua, Orca, and the anthology 10 Ways the Animals Will Save Us from Retreat West Books. He received third place in the 2022 Dreamers Creative Writing Flash Fiction Contest and second place in the 2021 Prime Number Magazine Flash Fiction Prize. Noah is currently working on his first novel, and his solo records Desert Cities and The View from the Ground are available on all major music streaming platforms. Today, Noah has brought an excerpt from a short story to read for us. All right, thank you. Uh, This is an excerpt from The Old Kind of Memory, and it's coming out this May in Orca. When Jedediah first woke up as a house, toes curled under hardened heels, shin cemented in the dry earth, back arched, pitched at the crook of his neck, and long wooden arms wrapped around his head, walling himself in. Father called him a miracle. How else could a house appear out of the thin Colorado air on his newly purchased patch of high plains? Jed heard father's heavy footsteps, running to the covered wagon. Honey, he hollered, wake up! Belly full with Jed's baby sibling, his mother eased herself across the wagon bed. The spokes groaned as father helped her down. There was a long silence. A magpie laughed in the distance. Then mother gasped in horror. Jed tried to get up, to go to her, to grab the hem of her sleeve and assure her that all was okay. 
That was the moment he realized he couldn't move or see. Where's Jed? Mother said. He was in the wagon with you. Even the wind held its breath. Jed, she shouted. His foundation shook. There was a search. Father combed the tall brown grass in and around their plot. But soon he had to prepare the fields for planting. With mother as big as she was, they couldn't afford to wait any longer. So the search ended as quickly as it began. Jed's mother refused to move inside of him, and he rarely heard their voices anymore. All was silent on the high plains, save for the morning birds and wind. That's when Jed craned his head around to face the field where the wagon stood. It took weeks, working his body into this new shape. His muscles creaked, threatening to crack. Even his eyelids, which were so heavy that it took all his might to open them. On the morning he finally did, Father awoke to a chilly late summer draft. Jed's eyes had become windows. He could now see in both directions, in and outside of himself. That day, Father rode to Denver and bought two sheets of glass to install in the openings. Jed would never close his eyes again. And so he watched as Father ripped the canvas off the wagon. I won't have you living out here in the cold anymore, he said to Mother. I know you don't want to hear it, but God has given us this house. He turned and looked Jed dead in the eyes. We will have another son. A month later, Mother gave birth. Jed's little sister was born in the living room on the wooden floor of his heart. What will we name her, Mother said, between heavy breaths, holding the child for the first time. Father opened a Bible and read aloud the first girl name he found, Abigail. Then he clapped the book shut and returned to the fields. As the harvest grew near, Father rarely came inside anymore, and Mother hardly got out of bed despite the baby's incessant wailing. Lying there with Abigail swaddled beside her, she'd moan, You traded my son. My boy, you made a deal with the devil and traded my son for a house. That's when Jed made his first attempt to communicate. Father had already begun the process of winterizing him. His mouth had been grouted shut and lungs stuffed with insulation. So Jed hummed. He thought if he could hum Mother's favorite song, she'd know it was him. That they were all still together and that he was protecting her now. It took a whole day to fill his gagged, boarded-up lungs and hum a single note and 20 days to hum the first line of You Are My Sunshine. Mother hardly noticed. After all his effort, she only became warier of living inside him. She called him cursed. She called him haunted. But Jed took pleasure in knowing he was able to help her in one small way. When he hummed, Abigail stopped crying. As soon as she heard the low, airy frequency, she quieted, smiled, and cooed along. This is how Abigail came to know her big brother. When she became an adult, which in the old days meant 14, and she started talking to him. Big brother, she'd say, as she hung the laundry out to dry, voice light and lilting. Did you hear the coyotes howling last night? Or, big brother, it's already May. Looks like it's going to snow. How about that? Eventually, she started talking to him at night, too. She spoke of all sorts of things, like the Mickelhenny boy that worked in the mill, who she thought was nice-looking how his sister, Elise, was the most beautiful person she'd ever seen, and how she was afraid that God or the devil must have put such sinful feelings inside of her because the girls at school told her so. Jed prepared his lungs, and over the course of five days hummed the opening melody of You Are My Sunshine twice, hoping Abby would understand he meant to communicate the second phrase, You'll Never Know, Dear, because it was the closest lyric in the song to express that he believed it had nothing to do with God, and certainly not with the devil. 
He went on humming the notes for the words in the second verse in this new order. But if you love another, you'll regret it all someday. Two years later, she was married off to the Mickleheny boy, and Elise was married off to some boy from Cheyenne. Jed would learn this a long while later at his mother's funeral. By then, Abby was different, quiet and exhausted in the way he remembered mother after his transformation. He spent the whole day filling his lungs to call out to her, but she left before he got the chance. At one point, while she was standing alone on the side yard, resting a palm on his splintered shoulder, she hummed the refrain to You Are My Sunshine. Jed would come to think of this as her goodbye. Noah, thanks for being here. You're a fantastic reader. That was great. (laughs) Thank you. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, I'm happy to have you. And I'm really excited to talk about the story you just read from, The Old Kind of Memory, which will, as you mentioned, will be published in the May issue of Orca. I encourage everyone to grab a copy when it comes out and read the whole story because it's really, really good. But the excerpt alone is really intriguing from that very first line, which starts with Jed waking up as a house. Do you remember how the idea for this story first came to you? You know, it's funny. I... um I wrote this for a class at Rutgers, um, and the class was actually on the craft of speculative fiction. Um, this was the third story I wrote in, in a sequence that, that was actually all interrogating um, gentrification. Oh, okay. And so we had been reading, uh, you know, we'd been reading the Metamorphosis, uh, Metamorphosis by Kafka, and um, I, I thought, like, oh, what if I, what if I tell a story about? gentrification from the POV of a house. Yeah. Um, what emerged, of course, was something very different. And um, yeah, it became one of my favorite pieces of the of the course. Yeah, this strikes me as the kind of story that probably surprised you along the way as you were writing it. And I, one thing that you mentioned to me before the interview was how your writing and rewriting process allows you to make discoveries about the story. So how did that process unfold for you as you were writing this one? Absolutely. This was an unusual story for me that I wrote without a plan or any sort of outline. What I knew that I wanted to do was, um, you know, have um, Jedediah, my, my character, my house, you know, rather than uh, the house being haunted, the house is going to be haunted by, you know, perhaps generations of his family to come. And right. and after right. that, um, other families that move in. So one way that I was I was really surprised in the way the story developed was considering, you know, what of the what of what of the other conscious material characters um, on this land and in this developing neighborhood. So Jed will commune with other um you know, characters through fungal networks and through the weather and, and things like this. But it, it really did, um, it really did develop incrementally. And, and I found that um, each time I rewrote it, I discovered a little bit more and um, pushed it in new directions. Um, I was really lucky too, that um, I, 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 you know, I'm, I'm, often submitting stories. And and I, I felt that this one was ready to submit at a certain point, but, um, so, you know, Orca got back to me, um, and they had said, you know, we, we really like this, but you know, we want to work on it with you, which was the first time I've had that experience with a publisher, you know, so I got to rewrite a couple versions of it and send it back and forth to one of their editors. And, and through those conversations, it also developed a lot. 
Another thing that's interesting here, and you kind of touched on this, is the the point of view, which is in third person, but but seems to be filtered through the perspective of Jed, the house, which mm-hmm. I imagine was difficult to write considering that he is now a house. I want to hear you talk about this because I know you teach a class at Rutgers on POV and form and fiction. So how did you use those two things to complicate and inform this story? This is a great question. You know, so much of it, the the voice came about organically. And what's interesting, um, it was in my only in my final uh, rewrite of the story. It does alternate back to first. It was important for me to add that that first person perspective, because something that I was starting to feel along the way was that um, while this third person POV is, is really closely focalized on Jed, it's distant. And, um, you know, after becoming a house and as he, as he grows up as a house, he becomes much more distant from the people in the story, which I think is, is, you know, reflected in, in that uh, point of view. Um, And I wanted to kind of counteract that um, with these first person memories but also like, you know, craft wise, one of the things that I think was helpful about giving myself this sort of um, more rigid uh, framework with the point of view was it, um, you know, I, I realized, okay, so everything has to be observed with sound at first, you know, and then once Jed can see, what does it mean to see, you know, in, in and outside of himself? And so I was I was working with senses in a, in a new way than I than I really ever had with any other story. Well, speaking of sound, another thing that stood out to me in this story was the focus on music, specifically the song "You Are My Sunshine," which Jed the house uses to communicate with his family. I know that you have been a full time music educator, composer, and performing songwriter for over a decade now. Does music often show up in your stories? Inevitably, it does. <laughs> <laughs> Somehow, even in a story like this, um, that isn't about a musician. I, I write a, a lot of my characters are musicians. Um, um, but yeah, so so Jed is um, he, he I found that, you know, he can only communicate by humming and and this um, this motif with you are my sunshine emerged. But, you know, I think because I've spent so much time tuned into music, analyzing music, listening to it, describe, you know, through teaching it, describing music. Um, I find that it's, it's a really great way and just a fruitful way for me personally to, to get into a character, to get into a scene. Um, and so I, I like to, I like to use it, it, it you know, I think because I'm so attuned to music, listening and describing it, I, uh, I, it inevitably sneaks its way into, into just about every story for me. Yeah. So in what ways do you use the music to explore the world and the characters in your stories? Well, I definitely think it depends story to story, you know, certainly in the old kind of memory, it's, it's a means of like limited communication between Jed and his family in my thesis, which is a novel I'm working on it centers a, a musician who's losing his hearing, uh, meanwhile translating, sorry, uh, um, transcribing uh, his uh, audio journal that he's kept 
for, for many years. And so the nature of the journal itself is so dependent on sound. Um, and the character has, you know, very broad language for how to, how to engage and understand sound and to, you know, to think about sound and, and, and meanwhile, as he's, you know, creating this, this written document, um, he's, he's losing the ability to, to perceive it. So I think, you know, in this case, music is emerging as uh, a means to explore his own identity um, and the shifting ways in which he's engaging with his, his world and community. You've also been a freelance portrait photographer for many years. I'm sure the craft of music and photography is quite different from the craft of writing short stories or novels, but I'm curious to hear the ways in which they overlap for you. Yeah, I I love to talk about this, but I, I think it, it tends to resonate mostly with my fellow um, writer, musician, uh-huh. um, <laughs> you know, nerds out there. Um, and, and that goes for photography too. But, you know, while on the subject of music, I think about the craft of music a lot when I'm writing. For example, <laughs> I... In in an early craft class at Rutgers, one of my professors asked me to to give a like a a, a mini presentation on this because I I find myself talking about it a lot, the ways in which I think in cadences, you know, I think of drafting very similarly as I do to recording a take of a song. I'm thinking about you know tension and release and how they shape the arc of a scene. I'm thinking about rhythm, not just in the language, but in the pacing. I'm thinking of the right moment to, to, to drop a deceptive resolution, you know, uh, where the cadence doesn't go exactly where you think it goes or, or maybe to modulate the story, right? Like the old kind of memory in the middle, like it's got a key change where it goes in a very different direction. And, you know, that's, that's the kind of the language that I use when I am, um, thinking about drafting. It's the, the language that I use when I'm thinking about editing. And it is, I think, kind of very unique to me, but I, I do have some some fellow musician friends in my program, and it's it's been really fun to connect over that. Um, and similarly with some, some musician students in the classes I've taught. With photography, well, photography, first of all, it really did... Um, open my eyes, so to speak. I, you know, before I got into it, I wasn't paying attention to the quality of light. And I, um, I, I found an, an, you know, yet another, um, new language for observing and describing the world around me. I was just talking to a a student yesterday about this because she had expressed an interest in photography. And, and I think one of the best things that it gave me as a writer was, um, it helps kind of train my instinct to look around in those moments when I'm waiting for a class or waiting for a train, you know, to, to like find the shot um, and think about how I would frame it. I, I really do think that, you know, though the process and the materials are different, it's, it's, it's the same thing as building a scene, you know, where's the moment here and how, how do I want to frame it? You know, what's going to be in focus? How much depth of field is there? You know, how much of the setting am I bringing in? How much of the background am I bringing in? You know, how am I going to light this thing? What is, you know, what is the mood of the language? Um, And so, 
having these, you know, multiple disciplines, I think has been really fruitful and, um, and just helpful to have multiple ways to approach, you know, a given, a given project or challenge within a project. One of the things I think about a lot in relation to writing process is this idea of like planning versus um, letting the story kind of develop in real time. Mm -hmm. I imagine with music, it's the same. Like there's some kind of balance between like how much you can really plan a song and how much you just have to let the song kind of find you. And I imagine the same with photography, right? Too. You can think about those things like framing, but you still have to wait for the moment to find you. Right. I think so. I think what, what photography helped me realize though, is, is there's always a moment, you know, there's always something, something to capture. And, um, I, I suppose the, what, the, what that translates to in my writing process recently is, you know, as, as I construct my, my thesis, um, this novel, you know, there's, there's all the exposition, right? There's all the connective tissue of, of the scenes that I really want to write. And when I find myself in those, in those stretches of, of just, you know, drafting setup, I, I do try to find find the moments in them that can offer a memorable image or some kind of moment that I can, that I can dramatize to still make, make that scene feel as, um, as important as the rest. And at least as, as vivid as the rest. I mentioned you've been a working musician for a decade or so now, a decade or so is, also how long it took you to finish your undergrad degree. I imagine that's not totally a coincidence. So what took you so long to finish that degree and how important was that journey to making you the artist you are today? Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. Um, those two things are, are very much intertwined. Um, <laughs> I actually, I actually, uh, I started my, my 10 year undergrad journey in music school and I left at a time when I was feeling, you know, I was feeling unsure that I wanted to fully invest in that path and take on the financial burden of that path. Um, and I was really fortunate to have a mentor, the late Woody Mann, who's a fantastic, fantastic guitar player who encouraged me to, you know, take a, take a break, um, to go try working in different, you know, areas of the industry, um, and to see what comes of it. And, and so that was kind of, you know, my first, uh, journey away from, from college. Um, I was, you know, I was performing, I was composing, I was doing a lot of accompaniment for theatrical performances. Um, I worked at a music festival, then another music festival. Yeah, there was, <laughs> there was a lot, um, there was a lot going on. You know, I still, love being a student though. And, and through all of this, I've loved being a student. And so, you know, I was, I was still like going back, you know, getting, getting, you know, doing a gen ed course here, trying something new over there um, in a way that I felt was, you know, more financially feasible for me. And, you know, maybe I'd get in the swing of a semester, but then, you know, join a band and, and focus on, you know, what we were doing for, for another semester or a year. And then um, I actually, I moved, I was living in Colorado. This is my hometown is Denver. 
And I, you know, more or less on a whim moved to New York City with a band that I was playing with at the time. And so that, again, took me away from college. And I never abandoned the goal of finishing it or really the desire to continue going as just another outlet for myself. And pretty soon after um, leaving music school, the idea to study English literature and creative writing was present. Um, it was on my mind. Um, finally, the, uh, the pandemic lockdown gave me the opportunity to finish my degree uh, at Hunter College here in New York City. So I did it all online. By then, I finished most of my gen eds, and I, um, I just had to take the fun classes, the, the literature classes. And, and, you know, I guess this is the long way around to the answer to your question, which is, you know, the exp- this decade full of experiences is what animates my, my writing right now. Certainly, it's what animates um, my favorite writing that I'm, that I'm doing. So, you know, I wouldn't change a thing. Well, you told me that during those 10 years, you were writing, but you were keeping it very close to the chest. What motivated you to focus more on writing and decide to finish that undergraduate degree and then pursue the MFA? Yeah, there's so many factors. Um, And I think what it really came down to. So when I moved to New York, um, quite unexpectedly, within a month of moving here, I met um, my now wife, Natalia. And um, that was such a wonderful part of moving here. And it, it certainly was a, a huge milestone in my life. Um, we, uh, we've been together for the last six years. And in the middle of that time, uh, we were apart for a year. Um, she is from Mexico City. She went back home for a year. Um, and we were, you know, we were long distance. And something about that year, even though I was still engaged with the band, I was doing, um, you know, I was performing a lot. I was working. Um, when Natalia left, I started writing every day and I started, it it became a much more significant creative outlet in my life. Um, it, you know, for reasons that I'm, I'm not totally sure I, I fully understand. Um, I think I just needed it. And, um, and because it was something I was putting so much time into, you know, inevitably I was starting to show some friends. I was certainly, you know, starting to, to show Natalia and, um, and there was no going back. It felt good to dedicate more time to it and, um, and to share it with people. Well, and then you decided to pursue the MFA and you settled on the two-year program at Rutgers University, Newark. You're focusing on fiction in the program, but there's also a track in poetry. According to the website, the program offers funding to all admitted full-time students. We know that you've taught that class on POV and form. I'm curious to hear you talk about what the funding looks like in the program. Are all students teaching while they're in the program? No. Um, so what's cool about the program, um, it does offer a stipend, uh, regardless of whether you, you do teach or not. However, um, the stipend, which is, it did just change, but it's, it's more or less like 30 to 32,000 a year. You, you can only get the full stipend if you have a New Jersey address because I live in New York The the semesters when I don't teach, I receive, I think it's more or less half of that or half, half that would be 
um, distributed during that semester. Mo- most of us teach every other semester so that we're also focused on writing in the off semesters. But it is fully funded for all. There's the option to teach and um, that does um, offer, you know, pay. Those that don't teach do get a stipend. They get the full stipend if they live in New Jersey and otherwise more or less half of it. In addition, you told me that you've continued to work full-time outside the program while attending. Is it difficult to balance all those responsibilities? Yeah. Yeah, it is. You know, and part of that decision, it came from, you know, the choice to stay in New York, um, to make sure that I could cover my expenses here, but also to maintain my, um, you know, I, as a private music teacher, I've, I've built up a clientele over the last six years that I I want to, you know, maintain connected with. And so that's, that's a big reason why I've continued to teach full time outside of the program as well. Um, it is a lot to balance, but what I think has been the great, you know, benefit of that is it's forced me to create structure in my life, um, and to practice building writing into a busy lifestyle. Um, and so what that often looks like for me is, you know, my alarm goes off around 5.30, 5.45, and hopefully by by 6, I'm, I'm writing. And I, I write for a couple hours every morning and then start my day, um, whether that's going, you know, into Manhattan to teach um, music students or into New Jersey to teach or take classes at, at Rutgers. I'm not sure how you find the time, but you told me that you also love participating in campus life, doing additional teaching, mentoring undergrads, and advising the first undergrad creative writing club. Tell us about those activities and what drew you to them. Yeah, it is. um, It's it's busy, Um, but I love doing it. It's a great way, you know, to fill fill my days. I think perhaps because my undergrad experience was, you know, so disconnected and I was often preoccupied with projects I was doing outside of school, I felt like I missed out on something of the college experience that I was able to gain here. Um, you know, being on campus, uh, being involved in um, these, you know, student groups and on-campus events and, and really feeling like a part of the community I wanted to take full advantage of that. And so when the opportunity arose to, you know, become a co-faculty advisor for this um, new undergrad creative writing club, I jumped right in. I was really excited to be a part of it. And um, I helped them get it off the ground to facilitate their first events. And they're, they're growing. They're doing such great things now. Also, um, I think because I was expressing such an interest in, in teaching and being involved with groups like this, you know, I was um, asked if I wanted to be a, a graduate school mentor. And so I do that as well. I've got eight mentees. We meet more or less biweekly. They're, they're not just um, creative writing students either. They're in all departments across the, across the campus. And a lot of what I do is talking about what grad school is like, helping them with um internship applications or grad school applications, but a lot of just, you know, talking about student life and how to get through it and how to organize your time, you know, to do do so many things. Um, It's been a joy. And I think it's also 
for me been important because I sought out the MFA because I want to teach. And so I really wanted to experience as much of that life as I could from teaching to mentoring to advising. And Rutgers um, was able to provide a lot of opportunity for that. Well, I'd also like to hear about some of the classes you've taken while in the program. So how are the workshops? I know you mentioned that students often write in a variety of genres. Do you enjoy that? Absolutely. It's great. It's fun because I feel like I'm I'm reading very widely and also naturally in a workshop. Everyone's going to bring different experiences and perspectives. Um, but it's great to hear, you know, from somebody who's writing a YA sci-fi you know, and the things that they're thinking about and how that might inform what what I'm writing or, you know, someone who's who's writing um, a more abstract, informal uh, project and, and the way that they're thinking about um, the craft of fiction and how that informs what I'm doing. So it, it's been really great um, and something I'm really I'm really glad for. I know my cohort members are as well, that there's so much freedom to explore here. Uh, we're, we're even, I have a professor who encourages us to do uh, fan fiction too. And so it, it seems to me from what I've heard from others that it's a unique part of Rutgers Newark's uh, workshops at Rutgers Newark. And furthermore, they, they encourage us to, uh, to jump tracks a little bit. So uh, at Rutgers Newark, we can take, uh, as a fiction student, I can take poetry classes and Poetry students can take fiction classes. In fact, I'm going to take a poetry class. I'm excited uh, in my next and final semester. Similarly, we have uh, full access to uh, classes in every department on campus. The idea being, you know, go study whatever you're interested in so that you can write about it. So have you had the opportunity to take some classes that are outside of the creative writing department, outside of the English department? Well, I, I've had the opportunity, but I, I've been pulled mostly to the creative writing classes, to be honest. I, I do love that it's an option. And I, you know, sometimes I often feel overwhelmed looking at like all the things I can go <laughs> yeah. and study. I've certainly known, known other folks in the program that have ventured out and tried, you know, psychology to history and political science and so on. Yeah, it sounds really cool. Another class you mentioned that I want to hear about is a course called Life as a Writer, which is taught by Professor Naomi Jackson. What kinds of things were covered in that course? Yeah, this was a great course. Um, it was definitely something that I was hoping to get out of the MFA experience, but wasn't even like sure what it looked like yet when I was, you know, coming in. You know, like how do you make a life as a writer? And so Professor Jackson would, you know, basically every week she brought in a different speaker who was making their life as a writer or in some way related to the literary industry. So that could be, you know, from an alum of the program and, you know, what they're doing to folks that work in residencies and, um, you know, do the acceptance process for, for writers to join to editors, to agents, to, um, the heads of different publishing companies. 
we heard from all sorts of folks and got to, you know, in a very intimate group, ask them anything. But moreover, uh, the class, the assignments in the class were preparing us for, you know, what what we're going to be doing very soon, if not already. And, and the idea is that every assignment could be used for what, it, you know, not just as a practice run, but, you know, to actually start working in the industry. For example, we, we wrote um, book proposals and we wrote pitches to magazines and we wrote query letters. We wrote our CVs. We were walked through the uh, interview processes to work in um, universities. So there, it, it covered a lot of ground and was certainly one of my most memorable and probably most helpful classes that I took um, so far. And I imagine it's a great class for building community. So how has your experience been building community within your cohort, within the program, but also outside of that in the greater New York area? It was really helpful. I think the best part about the MFA, though, has been the community of my cohort. This was another reason why I was so drawn to an MFA program, because I think this is a common experience um, for um, writers who are getting started or, you know, more or less like close to where I was when I was, you know, keeping things close to the chest. I, I didn't have a community of like dedicated readers and writers to just, you know, sit down and nerd out about stories with. That has been such a great gift of this program. And I'm, I'm grateful that, you know, my cohort is really warm and welcoming. Um, I've made some great friendships. You know, it's, it's not the kind of uh, cohort that you sometimes read about that's very, like, competitive and cutthroat. We're very supportive of each other. And, um, yeah, I, they're, they're relationships that I, I certainly um, intend to hold on to and to continue uh, growing. Well, you're uh, speeding towards the end of the program here. You're, um, I imagine, going into your last semester here pretty soon. You've been writing short stories. You mentioned you've been working on this novel. How's the novel going, and and what's next for you? Yeah, I can't believe I can't believe that I'm this close to the end already. That is wild. I don't want it to end. I want to savor every minute of it. Um, I'm going to miss it a lot, and. Yeah, yeah. So, so there's the novel, um, which is occupying a lot of my day and my mind these days. I'm pretty close to finishing up a third draft, which will be pretty close to what I turn in. Um, after I finish this draft, a lot of next semester is going to be line editing um, with my thesis advisor. And I'm excited for that process to really, to really dig in on the line level with her. And trying some new stuff in my last semester, you know, I think I was really inspired by the the work I was able to generate in my speculative fiction class. And I, I hope to explore more things like that, more things I haven't tried before. Of course, then graduation is going to come and I'm going to have some more time, which I'm looking forward to. I certainly think that um, I, I look forward to being able to uh, to write a little bit slower 
uh, you know, and like, and kind of steep in the process a little bit more. It's been very fast paced um, while in the program. So I'm excited for that. I'm excited um, certainly to seek new teaching opportunities. That's a big part of what I'm doing now. The great thing about, you know, already having my music teaching is that's still there for me and I get to kind of comfortably transition back into um, what I was doing before the program, but hopefully integrate more and more of what I've been doing since. Well, yeah, that all, all sounds great. I can't wait to see what you end up doing next. Before we go here, I've got one final question for you. What is one way in which the MFA experience has been different for better or for worse from your expectations when applying? That's a tricky question. I think because I was very fortunate to have a good friend who'd been through an MFA experience, um, I think I had a, a certain picture of what the MFA experience would be like and my expectations were met, you know, in that I I got to have a, a writing community I got to uh, build relationships with um, professional writers that I really admired. Um, and I got to spend, you know, these, this time, you know, focusing first and foremost on my writing. I think if I was surprised by anything, it was what I found myself drawn to in my own writing. You know, it's such a, it's such a great environment to be in as a writer I've been exposed to so much through my peers, through my professors, the readings we've done, the discussions we've had. And what I've, what I've been most surprised by is what I'm, what I'm writing now. As I said, you know, the story, the old kind of memory is unlike anything I've, I've written before. Um, the novel that I'm writing for my thesis is different than anything I was writing before the program. And it's really exciting to discover all these new areas that are inspiring me in my own process and writing. So that's been a big takeaway, you know, this, this intensive, this like brief and intensive process has pushed and pulled me into many new directions and um, uh, allowed me really kind of like prodded me to like push the boundaries of, um, of what it is that I'm, what I'm doing and what I'm trying in fiction. And it's been really exciting. Well, Noah, thank you so much for squeezing us into your busy schedule. Enjoy your final semester and after graduation, enjoy a little downtime, right? Thank you so much. Uh, it's Thank you so much for having me. Uh, this, is, this was a pleasure, Jared, and um, I do appreciate that. I'm looking forward to some downtime for sure.